Welcome to Knowledge Engaged, the podcast of the University of Nottingham's Institute for Policy and Engagement. I'm Ben Sherwood and welcome to another COP26 themed episode where today I am joined by Robert McCorkadale. Robert is Professor of International Law and Human Rights in the Faculty of Social Sciences and he's also a practicing barrister and he's a bit of an expert when it comes to human rights. And we're going to be talking about a concept called human rights due diligence and what is potentially a different avenue we can take in the fight against climate change. Robert, thank you for joining me today. Really nice to have you. And I was just wondering, just to start off, could you possibly tell us a little bit about how your research came about? Of course. Thanks, Ben. Uh, I've been working on the responsibilities of corporations for human rights impact for a number of years, not least because when most people think about human rights, they think it in the context of state responsibilities of human rights abuses. And of course, states do it all around the world. But for many people around the world, their most significant impact might be a corporate activity for someone working in a factory, in the fields, around mining sites and many, many other areas. It's often the corporation more than the state that is the main power in their lives. And so I thought, well, conceptually, human rights should be about assisting the oppressed from whatever power affects them. And that power does not need to be just the state. But also practically, I should look at this area to consider the extent to which corporations have responsibilities for their human rights impacts. Yeah, no, that's that's really good. So I was reading your blog that you've also written for us. Uh, I I will copy a link into the description of this episode so everyone can read that. And yeah, I, I was getting a little taste of that from your blog and I found it really interesting. It particularly resonates with me because so often people talk about this dilemma between what the individual can do, what the state can do, and that there's these like seven companies that have so much that they can do. And it really seems to link up with that for me from what you were saying. And I'm really interested in this concept of using human rights as this avenue rather than asking a state to put these restrictions on. So I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about your thoughts on that. Sure, of course. I guess that What's happened is because of all these instances where companies have abused human rights or have had major disasters caused by them, everything from dam collapses to pollution to actions in a range of different events around the world, there was a sense to which there needs to be some regulation of this. And so in 2011, the UN Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights, which I'll refer to a few times, They made it clear what the obligations were in relation to companies. And this UN Guiding Principle of Business Human Rights has now been adopted in many other international documents and in various bits of national legislation, which I can talk about later. But basically what's important is they looked at this whole area of corporate activities which have human rights impacts And they broke it into three parts. Firstly, what's the state's obligations? And it made it very clear, and that's the general position under international human rights law, that a state has a duty to protect human rights of everybody within their jurisdiction from whoever. It could be another state actor or it could be a corporation or some other entity. But the second part is corporations themselves have a responsibility to respect human rights. The third part is 
that there should be access to remedies for these victims. Yeah. But this middle part, which is what you're asking about, about corporate responsibility for their activities, talks in terms about the corporation should not cause or contribute to these human rights impacts and that it must use its leverage in relation to its business relationships, such as down their supply chain, to ensure that these human rights impacts are reduced or mitigated or, of course, stopped. And so for me, I'd much prefer for companies not to be acting in this, to prevent this happening, than just after the event try to bring litigation against them. So this idea has been encapsulated in what's called human rights due diligence, that companies should identify what the human rights impacts might be, prevent them, to mitigate and to account for them. And these are both actual and potential human rights impact. And this is groundbreaking. Why? Because mostly when companies think about what they should do, they look at their own selves. They don't look at the rights holders who are being affected. Whereas human rights due diligence is all about let the company look at the rights holders. It could be the employees. It could be the local community. It could be an indigenous group, what their impact is. And then the company takes action. So it does begin to change this idea that companies only look at how they might be affected, but not looking at what their impacts might be on others. And so what's happened is this has got more and more accepted. And as I say, it's been brought into a range of international documents and in national legislation. It it seems to me like this, as you say, this is a groundbreaking thing. And it feels like more people should be talking about this. (laughs) Because I I, I know, again, from reading what you put in your blog as well, that things like COP, it is very much focused on what the state can do, what governments can do around the world. And that is important, as you say, but it feels like this is a big area that should be included. Why do you think people aren't talking about that as much? Mm, It's a a, a fair, very fair question. I think it's a combination of two parts. The first thing is, whereas there's been this development of corporations having human rights responsibilities, that hasn't really been thought of in terms of climate change. And secondly, even though, of course, companies are very often the ones who are producing the oil and gas and various uh, matters which go into the atmosphere and cause cause greenhouse gases and lead to climate change, we look at the state having the action on that. But if we merge the two ideas, the idea that companies have this human rights due diligence requirement to ensure that they don't cause actual or potential human rights impacts, and we understand human rights in a much bigger way than just thinking a human right is when, let's say, I do something to you and you personally are affected. But it can also be when a corporation do something which affects lots of people. I mean, we're very familiar with that, of course, in things like genocide, where it's a group affected. But somehow or other, when we look at climate change, we think, well, there has to be one individual or two or three that are affected. But actually, human rights does allow for this broad base. But the other difficulty is that usually when we look at human rights, we look at a causation, that something causes something else. Yeah. And of course, in climate change, that's very difficult to prove that a company has directly caused something. Now, of course, you'll see it when they cause pollution. But what about a broader issue of climate change? And I think we're beginning to understand because of the developments 
in this business and human rights area I've been talking about, that one responsibility of a corporation is not to contribute to human rights impacts. Yeah. And of course, part of the contribution in terms of climate change is in relation to how the company might be you know, spewing gases into the air, might be polluting water, might be doing things which affect all of us, not just the one activity. And so that idea of contribution is very important. And I think that's where bringing together these ideas developed in business and human rights is actually quite important in relation to climate change. I'm going to add one other point, which is just last week, mm. the Human Rights Council of the United Nations determined that there is a human right to a clean and healthy environment. They've been talking about this for ages and ages, but yeah. that has to connect directly with climate change. Because if we understand we have a right to a clean and healthy environment as individuals, as groups, as broader communities, then that is part of how we can also conceive part of the aspect of climate change. Yeah, I mean, it's great that happened just a week ago. That's that's amazing. This idea of just focusing on contribution really chimes with me because I, I think it's so easy for people, a company to distance themselves from something. If you, as you say, if you can't prove, yes, this company in particular has caused this problem. And as you say, it's very easy to say, oh, I don't know, like when BP does a fuel spill. Oh, BP, that's your fault. And that, again, is an after the fact kind of deal. So, yeah, this idea of not wanting to be a contributor is, I think, a very important one. It seems like such a logical link. Now that you've said it, you've said all of those, but it sounds so logical. And yet there's so many links in this chain. Say, like, we need to encourage people to look at the bigger picture rather than the direct causation, as, as you've just said. So and we you know, saw this in COVID, if you like. During mm. COVID, a lot of the major retailers, for example, just sliced off their supply chain. They say, we don't know what's going to happen. We're not sure. We're not getting income. We're just going to cut off our supply chain. But that has a consequence. If you happen to be, I don't know, a working Bangladeshi woman in a factory and your retailer from the UK, let's say, has sliced off your supply chain. That has contributed, let's say, to that person losing, obviously, their income, losing mm -hmm. access to healthcare, losing childcare, losing a whole range of their human rights by the contribution of the slicing off the supply chain. Yeah. Now, in some ways, you know, we're just used to dealing with a pandemic, but the pandemic is an, an example, really, of what also happens in relation to climate change. If a company decides, let's say, to invest more in I don't know, oil exploration, they are contributing to impacts which will affect people around the world. So that there are definite examples which we can draw from in our current pandemic situation that are also relevant for climate change impacts of companies which contribute to it. At the same stage, by talking about supply chains, when that company perhaps is investing in, I don't know, plastic company, a company creating plastics, they are contributing down their supply chain to ensuring that the climate change does not reduce. It keeps on going up because they are influencing right down their supply chains what happens. You're probably familiar with these terminologies. We now talk often of scope one, scope two, and scope three in terms of the greenhouse gas impacts. Yeah. And scope three is the one which talks all about the much bigger aspect in terms of the company's impact right down at supply chain. So that it is important not just to think 
that company doing its activities contributes to climate change, but it is also contributing by its enhancement down their supply chain of any kind of uh, use of, let's say, fossil fuels in their production chain and, and elsewhere. Yeah, I, I feel like I've come across uh, a few stories of certain companies showing the good show like we're doing this, we're doing this. But as you, as you say, there's a subsidiary, there's somewhere down their supply chain where it just completely counteracts. It just cancels out what they've done. Annoyingly, you see that in a lot of areas, not just this one either. It seems I know it's a, a common one that happens, say, during Pride Month. Uh, for example. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, it's a common thing. It is. And, um, and that's where there's this concern about what's called greenwashing, that our companies yeah. saying we're doing all this. But actually, upon closer investigation, we discover that actually what they're doing that might be, let's say, helpful in terms of climate change is actually 0.05% of their entire activities. It's a tiny part. It's not really the reality of what they're moving forward on doing. Yeah. So I was wondering earlier on, you mentioned about EU legislation. So I was wondering on that because, you know, it's always going to be a hot topic at the moment, you know, Brexit. How linked are we to that? So it's really good that the EU is starting to bring in this legislation and, and gets taking steps towards this human rights due diligence that you're talking about. Is that something that we should be worried about? Because we're not part necessarily of the EU's legislation anymore. So how, how does this affect us? Uh, I think that it's uncertain really which way the UK will go. From my experience, and I've done a lot of empirical work with businesses around the world. Many of them want human rights due diligence. They want clear mandatory regulation about what is required. Now, for example, I was a special advisor to the UK Joint Committee on Human Rights, the Parliamentary Joint Committee, where we talked to, we had a lot of information coming from businesses. We talked to them, they came in, they gave evidence. Time and time again, these UK businesses are saying we want the UK government to bring in legislation in relation to mandatory human rights due diligence. And today I would say that includes aspects of climate change. Why? Partly competitively. If a, if a company is trying to do its best to ensure that it is not impacting on human rights, not impacting on climate change, but its competitor is, say, I don't know, using child labour, that yeah. their other competitor, that competitor's costs are lower. And so that's not, does not help the company that's trying to do do a better job. So I think governments need to be careful not to think, hey, we do nothing because actually companies don't want extra regulation. But in some areas they do because it helps them then talking down their supply chain. So yeah. I think that we have to be careful for the UK government not to think, oh, we'll just do it different to the UK, how the EU is doing it because many of the UK companies want it. And of course, Many, many UK companies, either directly or indirectly, are trading within the EU or operating within the EU. Yeah. So they have to then comply with EU regulations. So it doesn't actually help them if they've got these two different kinds of attitudes and, and in regulation they need to deal with. You're right. Yeah, it's presumably not very efficient for a company to have to do one thing for one side of the water, one side for the... You may as well do the same exactly. universally. Yeah, definitely. It is interesting to hear that, yeah, a lot of lot of businesses do want this and it makes complete sense. I guess it's this ongoing criticism that I've been hearing recently, just this sense of clarity. You just want clarity just yep. to know what the rules are and you can stick to them. 
it's coming across to me that that is the single most important thing a state can do <laughs> at the moment. Uh, that's a very fair point, because otherwise the only way there's a degree of clarity, at least in UK law, tends to happen through the court system. And there have mm. been two very important decisions by the UK Supreme Court on holding UK companies accountable for the human rights abuses in other countries. And so, for example, there was a case against Vedanta, a case against Shell. I should declare I was involved in both cases. And the UK Supreme Court said the parent company, in this in this case Shell or Vedanta, mm. does have a duty of care in relation to activities elsewhere in the world by their subsidiaries. So for those companies, that's where the law is developing. But there's no equivalent UK regulation of any kind which makes that clear. So, for example, one of the best pieces of legislation in recent years in this area is the Modern Slavery Act, which is an excellent piece of legislation and companies need to report all over their supply chain. However, it has no form of enforcement, no effective form of enforcement, no effective form of sanction, not even clarity about exactly which companies have to report on it. And so any new UK legislation that's brought in, say, on climate change or more generally on corporate activity and human rights, needs to have some kind of liability enforcement and supervision involved. And so I guess the decisions made against Shell, for example, seems like it's a, a positive step towards helping that come about, maybe. I, I think that's right. And you know, much better the company doesn't do it than they end up in litigation for everybody concerned. I mean, it takes Absolutely. years and years. And so I think that having a general form of regulation, particularly at this time when we're also aware of climate change, would be a very clever and uh, useful step forward by the UK government if they really are actively concerned about climate change. And so COP26 gives this great opportunity for the UK government to say, yes, we're going to introduce clarity in this area, introduce clear legislation which will deal with the human rights impacts of corporations, as well as how that relates in climate change terms. Yeah, you're right. It is a, it is a fantastic opportunity. I sincerely hope that they, they decide to go down that route. And I guess we will see. At the time that this podcast is going to release, it's just before the conference is going to start. So if you're listening to this now, this is going to be something to listen out for to see if it actually happens. So look forward to that. So one last question for me would be, uh, if people listening to this wanted to go away and, and find out more about this area, more about your own research, where might they go and have a look? Well, that's a, a good question. On my blog, I've got a range of potential places for people to find this information. There's a, an, an excellent NGO called Corporate Justice uh, Coalition, which does some very good work. And the very, very best place to look is the Business and Human Rights Resource Centre. They have an extraordinary website, which also includes corporate responses and things like that, which part of it is also about climate change, but it's more about human rights more generally. But that's a great, easy place to begin looking for some of this. Perfect. And yes, yeah, so I will make sure that there is a link to all of this uh, in the description to this episode so you can all find it and do take a look at Robert's blog. It's a very good read as well. That should be released uh, around the same time as this podcast. So please do look out for that. Robert, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been really, really fascinating for me. And let's see what happens at COP. My pleasure. Thanks a lot, Ben. Thank you for listening to Knowledge Engaged. Please look in the show notes to this episode to find all the links mentioned in the episode, including more information about the Institute and Robert's research. 
Keep an eye out for more COP26 themed episodes coming up in the coming days and weeks. And also keep an eye out for a special episode for Black History Month coming out in a couple of days time. Thanks for listening and see you next time.